Good morning, Harbin's friends and family. It's good to see you. It's good to see some family that's returned this morning, Fowlers. Um, it's good to see you guys this morning. It's always a joy to be in the presence of God's people, uh, the gathered community of Christians covenanted together in local expressions of the body of Christ is absolutely a beautiful and joyful thing. So please open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. We're going to read down to verse 50. We are continuing to march along through our chronological journey through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus in a series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Now, um, as you're finding the text this morning, uh, I got a question. How, how many of you guys out there recently, how many families have recently had a family portrait done? Anyone had a family portrait done? No, nobody recently? Last five years? All right, your kids are getting older. All right? You know, you may want to think about that. I know the same thing for us. And actually, the church gave us a family portrait last, almost a year ago, and we haven't taken advantage of it yet. But anyway, you've all had portraits. Has anyone had some portrait at some point in your life with your family? It's kind of an awkward experience, isn't it? You get in there, and they, they have you, you know, stand a certain way, and, and then they tell you, you know, turn your head, and say so you're doing this. Now tilt your head, and you're doing this. They say, good, now smile. You're like, really? You want me to smile as I'm standing like this? You know, and they take the picture, and, you know, inevitably, sometimes the portraits come out, well, sometimes they come out good, but sometimes they, they don't quite come out the way you expect it either. So I've, I've got a few examples here this morning of some families I'm not sure what the photographer was thinking there, but that just comes across a little awkward to me to have the family stacked on top of each other. Uh, I'm not sure I would have been real happy when I got that one. Now, sometimes a photographer will want you to do something maybe that expresses who your family is to try to you know, get that across so you remember. Maybe like have each kid demonstrate what sport they love, but it may not have come out quite the way it was expected to come out. Okay, it's a, a little awkward because, well, let's just say the kid in the back there may have some issues. And sometimes, well, sometimes they're actually, the, the way the portraits come out, are actually a, a clear representation of what our family is. Because sometimes we're just, we're just nerds, right? We're, we're just nerds. And the, and the family portrait, you know, pretty much shows that. But another thing that comes out sometimes in portraits is, well, just the dysfunction, like this family here, all right? Every family has a rebel. Can you identify which one it might be in that family? Okay? I can actually very much identify with that, that picture right there. Uh, not as the rebel, but uh, we have a rebel in our family. Now, this morning, what I want us to see, well, first of all, is that I think if we're honest and we think about our families, well, our families are all, well, a little bit odd, particular, certain way, um, and dysfunctional to a certain degree. Every single one of us. We live in a fallen world. We live in a dysfunctional world. So it shouldn't surprise us that dysfunction comes into the family unit. The family unit has been damaged by sin. Uh, workaholic fathers, smothering mothers, sibling rivalries, disobedient children, harsh parents. These sort of things affect almost any family that is human in one way or another. 
Add to that the fact that we live in a world that is becoming outright hostile against the traditional historical family unit. The sexual revolution, no-fault divorce, radical reproductive technologies, abortion, and of course the current attempt to redefine marriage, all these things have done great harm to the family. The family is, the, especially marriage, but the family is the foundational unit of society, of civilization. And yet it seems that we live in a culture today when that foundation is being shaken. I don't know how many of you guys saw any of the video from the, the earthquake that was in Nepal this past week. And hopefully you've been praying for the, the people in Nepal uh, that have been devastated by this earthquake. Thousands have perished because of it. But there was one video online of this, I guess, this ancient temple that had been there for like a thousand years. And, and as this earthquake hits, that, that thousand-year-old structure just, just crumbles, crumbles to the ground. And I think that's how maybe we feel. Maybe that's what we're worried about as, as the cultural earthquake that's happening right now is shaking the foundations of society by, by seemingly attacking, attacking the family unit. Maybe we, we wonder sometimes, is, is it going to stand? Is the family unit going to be able to withstand this earthquake? Well, I want to shift gears a little bit here and say, you know, it may come as a surprise to you as we come to today's text that the traditional family actually isn't meant to stand forever. It's not meant to be an eternal thing. The traditional family unit in today's text will see Jesus himself points out a higher, more important family. Jesus himself puts forth sort of a redefinition of the family in today's text. But we'll see Jesus' redefinition of the family does not come at the expense of the traditional family, not at all. Instead, Jesus' earth-shattering words, earth-shaking words, actually show us what our traditional families were meant to point to in the first place. And then... Jesus gives us a greater understanding of family, a family that can never be shaken. Jesus gives us a picture, a portrait of family that can never be shaken in today's text. So let's stand now as we read today's passage. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 26, we stand in the honor of reading God's word. The word of the Lord says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother And his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and we ask for you to bless the reading of the word now by granting me the grace to preach it carefully and accurately. Lord, we pray that you would be honored this morning above everything else. And Lord, if there be anything today that in our spirits, in our hearts, does not want to submit to your word, I pray, Father, that you would would rule, that your Holy Spirit would convict, and that you cause us to submit. But we can't do that if we don't hear. And so, God, we pray that you open up our ears to hear and grant us hearts that will believe. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Please be seated. Now this short little text that we're looking at today culminates a section of Matthew's gospel where there's been escalating tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. It began with Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath, and then Jesus followed that up by applying a a messianic passage from Isaiah to himself. And surely that, not only the healing on the Sabbath, but also Jesus claiming to be the Messiah by quoting that passage certainly upset and angered the religious leaders. And despite the fact that Jesus was doing many mighty miracles to to verify that he was indeed the Messiah, the religious leaders said that Jesus' source of power was satanic and not divine. So Jesus condemns them for this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw in last week's sermon that Peter preached, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they had failed to see and properly respond to the fact that the Messiah, the one greater than the temple, the one greater than Jonah, the one greater than Solomon, the promised prophet, priest, and king was here, and yet they failed to see it. So Jesus was exposing the the powerless powerless and empty nature of the ritualistic religion that the the Jewish religious leaders had embraced and were teaching. And so now he makes a stunning declaration about family that shows everyone that what Jesus desires is a deep abiding relationship and not a superficial fleeting religion. So here Jesus is teaching. When all of a sudden he's teaching, he's been doing miracles, and behold, his mother and his brothers show up on the scene. Now, I want to approach today's text by pointing out three things. I want to point out, first of all, what Jesus is not teaching, followed by two things that he is teaching. So first of all, what Jesus is not teaching. Jesus is not teaching that our earthly kinships are unimportant. I think that's important for us to establish early on here. Jesus is not teaching that our earthly kinships are unimportant. Jesus has been, it says here in verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So here's Jesus. He's been teaching, preaching, confronting the Pharisees. Someone comes up to him and says to him that his mother and brothers are outside. They want to speak to him. And of course, the scriptures teach us that that Jesus' mother's name is Mary. You guys know that. And from Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we know that Jesus had four brothers. And their names were James... Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Now, there's absolutely no reason to think that these are not the other children of Joseph and Mary. These are Joseph and Mary's other children that they had. We do not believe, as the Catholic Church does, in the perpetual virginity of Mary. You really have to just throw out texts like this one in order to believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, it's very likely that Joseph, Mary's husband, is dead at this point, that he's passed away because he's not here with them, and we don't see anything about Joseph after um, the, 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 the stories about Jesus' birth. So he probably passed away uh, at some point before Jesus began his, his earthly ministry. Now, what we do know is that Mary and the boys are outside. They're asking to speak to Jesus, and it's important for us to know uh, Right now, as we come into this text, that John 7, 5 tells us that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him at this point. So Jesus' brothers are not disciples of Jesus. 
his four brothers. Now, they would eventually become disciples of Jesus. Matter of fact, James would become the James that the book of James was written by, the, the, the lead pastor, if you will, of the Jerusalem church. Jude, Judas, would be the one who writes the book of Jude. And so we see that the brothers of Jesus become followers of Jesus. But at this point, they are not his disciples. Now, it's also important for us to note that in Mark's gospel, in Mark's version of these events, um, in the, in the section of Scripture in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, right before Jesus has the confrontation with the Pharisees where they, they say that he's casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, right before that, we read in Mark 3, verse 21, it says, When his family heard it, they went, outside, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. So before Jesus has that confrontation, the family's already hearing about some of the things Jesus is doing. And it says that his own family thought he was... He was out of his mind. And they went to try to grab him because they thought he, was, they thought he was, had lost it. And so we see in that parallel account that after this Mark chapter 3 verse 21 uh, verse, in Mark chapter 3 verses 22 through 30, that's the, that's the parallel passage where Mark has the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Pharisees making their accusation. And then right after that, we have the parallel of today's text. In Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. So in Mark's gospel, Mark records that the family comes to get him because they think he's crazy. Then the Pharisees have their confrontation with Jesus. And then we have this story right here. So it seems that Jesus' family, even now as they're coming to him, are profoundly worried about Jesus. And they very well may think that he's lost his mind. That he is not in his right mind. Now it's interesting that we read in today's text that Mary and, his, and the brothers, they stood outside. They stood outside, meaning that they were not part of the group that was around Jesus as he taught and did miracles. And I already mentioned to you that Jesus' brothers were not disciples yet, but the text seems to at least hint here at the possibility that Mary wasn't a fully convinced, fully devoted disciple of her son yet at this point. Now I may be wrong about that, but the text at least seems to hint that way. But regardless, they show up, they ask to seek him, and Jesus sort of ignores them. He sort of just blows them off. In verse 48, it says, But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It's a weird way to respond when your mother and your brothers are outside. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, a real quick explanation here. If you're looking at your, your copy of God's Word, you probably notice that it skips from verse 46 to verse 47. Is that most people's copy out there? You may have verse 47. If you have a Bible that doesn't have it there, it's going to be in your footnotes. And mainly that's real quick explanation. That that verse is not found in the earliest manuscripts. The best manuscripts we have of Matthew do not have that verse in it. So that's why the translators of the ESV have put it in a footnote instead of putting it up there in the actual text. Uh, it's, it's a pretty inconsequential verse. It was probably added by some scribe later on in some of the later manuscripts of Matthew to try to make it match up with Mark and Luke better, but we don't even need that. So verse 47 is not going to be in your text this morning. Now, let me move on. What I want us to understand first is that despite Jesus responding this way to his mother and his brothers being present, Jesus is not teaching through his words or his actions that his earthly family, his earthly kin are unimportant. He's not teaching that. 
Now, some have erroneously, I believe, attributed that sort of attitude to Jesus, saying that he is dismissing his family. He's dissing, dissing his family here in today's text. And sometimes people will cite other passages, like Mark chapter 10, verse 35, where Jesus says, For I have come to set man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Some people say, take that text and take this text and say, Jesus, he, he pretty much disses the, the nuclear family. He says it's not important anymore, and I do not agree with that at all. First of all, that Mark chapter 10 verse is referring to superior allegiance to Jesus. And, and so in today's text, there's no reason to believe that after what Jesus says about his family or about family in general, he doesn't then go out and meet with his mother and his brothers. So we don't know. But I think we can safely say that nowhere does Jesus say or do anything that suggests that earthly families are unimportant. And I want to give us a bigger reason for believing that. First of all, Jesus' thoughts and words are never at odds with the Scripture. The Word incarnate is never at odds with the Word written. Jesus is always consistent with the Scripture, and the Bible repeatedly teaches a very high importance of family. The Scripture very clearly teaches the importance of the family unit. Marriage and family were ordained at the very beginning. And even the Ten Commandments, the very law that reflects the character of God, demonstrates the high value of family both in the Fifth and the Seventh Commandments. And then Moses commanded the Israelites to highly value family, for it was the means by which God that God was going to use to, to transmit the truths of God to the next generation. And we see that in Deuteronomy 6, 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands. And they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see the high value of family, of the clan, of the tribe, of the lineage, of the heritage. And in the New Testament church, we see the high value of family. Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family. Uh, Paul and Silas reached the Philippian jailer and his whole family with the gospel. The Apostle Paul teaches the high value of marriage and earthly families in Ephesians 5 and 6 and in Colossians 3. He says to Timothy, a man who is charged to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And in Jesus' own ministry, he shows a deep love for marriage and for family. We see him celebrating marriage at a wedding feast. We see him defending marriage before the hypocritical Pharisees. We see him restoring lost children to people like Jairus and the widow that we saw a few weeks back. We see him blessing little children that were brought to him. And we see his deep love for his own mother in John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. Jesus is on the cross in this text in John chapter 19. And it says this in verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we can be certain that Jesus is not devaluing family and the family unit in today's text. Instead, Jesus is using his family's request 
to talk to him. He's using that as a teachable moment. You see, Jesus is the master of every occasion, and he's using this teachable moment to help his disciples see something glorious, something astounding. Namely, that to follow him means to be in his heavenly family. To be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, means that you are part of the family of God. You see, Jesus wants the disciples to see that earthly family, natural family, is designed to preview and point to heavenly family, supernatural family. So Jesus isn't redefining family at the expense of traditional family, but instead is redefining family by showing us what traditional family is foreshadowing. And that takes me to what Jesus is teaching. So here's the first thing that Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching that our heavenly kinship is ultimate. Jesus is teaching that our heavenly kinship is ultimate. Earthly kinship is important, but it's not ultimate. Heavenly kinship is. Verse 48, he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Ever heard that phrase? What does that mean? Anybody? Blood is thicker than water. So you hear someone say that. Family bonds are the most important, right? Family bonds trump all other bonds. Um, Now, it's interesting, um, as you said, in our culture that that means that our family ties, our blood ties, are more important than the ties we have with friends. But you know that's not what that phrase originally meant? I did a little research on that phrase this week. I actually got, in God's providence, got, um, I don't know if anybody subscribes to Modern Reformation. It's a great little magazine. I got Modern Reformation in the mail this week. And the, the front cover of it said, uh, water is thicker than blood. And the whole, whole, the whole magazine was about the importance of heavenly family above even traditional family. And it was like, God, drop this in my lap as I was preaching this text this week. It's just one of those things that God does from time to time to remind me of his sovereignty. So I get this, and I was thinking about that phrase, because they reversed it. They put, water is thicker than blood. I said, well, I want to go see what that phrase actually meant. And I went and looked it up, and actually... Uh, blood is thicker than water, is, is, it didn't originally mean what we, we think it means today. And that is that family kin is more important than friends. Actually, the original phrase was different. What we say today that blood is thicker than water is actually a redaction. It's a, it's a smaller version of what the original phrase was. Here was the original phrase. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And originally, it was a Christian saying. It became popular in the 1600s. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. It actually means not the opposite of what Christian said, but it means something totally different. Namely, that, it, that the kinship you have through the blood of Christ, through the blood of the covenant, trumps the kinship you have through the water of the womb. So that's what the phrase actually originally meant. And that's what Jesus is teaching about in today's text, or at least what he's implying in today's text. That's what Jesus is showing us. So when he replies to the man, who are my mother and who are my brothers, obviously Jesus is is not asking something he doesn't know. It's sort of a rhetorical question. Uh, He's he's asking this question for effect, and then he puts forth this startling answer. 
stretching out his hand toward his disciples, here are my mother and my brothers. He waves his hand over his followers and says that the most intimate earthly relationships that we have, the ones that were previously reserved for the nuclear family, that type of intimate personal relationship belongs to everyone who follows him. And so by doing this, Jesus is showing that there is a more ultimate family that we are called to belong to. There is a more ultimate kinship that we are part of. And he does it without denigrating the importance of our natural earthly families. He shows us, and he shows us in other places, that our supernatural heavenly family is ultimate. It's higher. Now, why is the heavenly family superior to the earthly one? Number one, because allegiance to God should trump allegiance to blood. Or to kinship. Allegiance to God should trump our allegiance to our fleshly kinship. In Luke chapter 9 verse 59, Jesus said to someone, follow me. The person responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who has put his hand to the plow looks back and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These texts, which seem on the surface to be, to be tough on family, are actually meant to show the superior allegiance, the superior loyalty that one is to have for Christ. We are born into ties that bind but we are reborn into ties that bind even more tightly. Ties that can't ever be broken. And so, sometimes declaring our allegiance to Christ is actually what severs the ties of our earthly families. Sometimes declaring allegiance to Christ is the thing that causes those family members that are supposed to be bound to us to cut the ties. So in Matthew 10, 37, we read this. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That cross for many and some in this room, that cross is to be shunned and shamed by your own family because of your beliefs. But if one loses his family for, for Christ's sake, if one loses his family for, for God's purposes, then guess what? He gains a better family. He gains a bigger family. Matthew 19, 29 says this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Everyone who leaves these earthly ties for my sake, guess what? You gain a bigger family. I can illustrate that in sort of a, it's not a perfect illustration, but when, um, when we left to go overseas on the mission field, I don't, um, I don't know if anyone else in here, maybe some in here who have been long-term missionaries. I don't think there are any other in here that have been long-term missionaries. But when you go overseas, and back then you've got to remember there's no email, there's no f- cell phones. Um, ham radio was the best way to communicate with our relatives back in the United States. But you're leaving, and you're leaving for a long period of time, and that's hard. And you're leaving for the sake of the gospel. 
And I remember the pain that my parents in particular went through. For me and my brother, it was kind of an exciting adventure. We were sad to say goodbye to our cousins and all that stuff. But for my parents, I just remember them crying and crying and crying. Not only when we would pull out of the driveway, but when we'd get on the airplane. And even when we first, those first few weeks there on the mission field, and they would cry and cry and cry. But you know what? Something happens when you're on the mission field. And you've talked to other missionaries and missionary kids, they'll tell you the exact same story. You gain a new family. You get down there, and now you have all these uncles and aunts that are missionary uncles and aunts, and you call them that, aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so. And even to this day, I still refer to those missionaries as aunts and uncles and all my missionary cousins. And so I have, mission, I have cousins across the globe, literally scattered across the globe, and uncles and aunts. Matter of fact, Heather's having a reunion with a bunch of her uncles and aunts from Burkina Faso just here in a few weeks, and it's an awesome thing. You gained a huge family when you went overseas to be a missionary, even though you had to cut some ties to go there. So in a much more greater way, we gain the family of God when we're willing to put our allegiance to Christ above our allegiance to our own family. So that's one of the reasons why a heavenly family is superior. But let me give you another one. Number two, because our earthly families are temporal, but our heavenly families are eternal. Our earthly families are temporal, but our heavenly family is eternal. Your nuclear family is built for this age. It's a temporal, natural family. But your faith family is built for the age to come. It is eternal and it is supernatural. We must see that the temporal is meant to point to the supernatural. It's supposed to point to the eternal. The natural is meant to foreshadow and be a parable of the supernatural. And that's the point Paul is making in the marriage relationship. You know the passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks, gives us these glorious words about marriage. But then he says this in verse 32, which almost sort of shocks you as you're reading it. He says this about the mystery of marriage. He says this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This, this bond between husband and wife, it is a profound mystery. Let me tell you what Paul's saying. It's actually about Christ and the church. It's a parable. It's a living parable about a greater relationship. It's a living parable about a greater marriage. It's a living parable about a greater family. And we see something similar in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, when the apostle who wrote Hebrews says this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and, were, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So learning obedience to earthly fathers is good. Children, you should learn to obey your parents. That's good. But it points to a higher obedience. It points to an obedience to a heavenly father. And so we were born into earthly families that were subject to futility of this fallen world. But we are reborn into, heavenly into a heavenly family, the church, that has overcome the world. A family that is being protected for an eternal kinship. Now let's think about that for a little bit, what it means for us. What does it mean for us that, that we have this higher family? It means that we need to live in the light of who we are. Just as we have a higher citizenship, we have a higher kinship. And so let's think about what it means. How do we live in that higher kinship? Well, first of all, as I've already mentioned this morning, for some of those it means that, that, that you live knowing that your decision to serve Christ, to serve God, to live for Him, will cause tension in your family or worse, even exclusion or ridicule. So some, 
the application for some people is that to claim Jesus means that you lose your earthly family. But I would say for others, probably most of us in this room, I don't know, there may be some in this room who have lost family because of your allegiance to Christ. But for most of us in this room, I think it means something else. It means that we must take much care not to focus on our family at the exclusion or at the expense of the church. Let me say this real carefully. We must take care not to focus on our nuclear family so much that we do it at the expense of or exclusion to the family of God. Having family worship is good, but it does not replace church. Some well-meaning people, in the name of trying to to honor family, end up violating Hebrews 10.25, which tells us not to neglect to meet together. I believe that having worship in your home alone as your family, that's fine. But if you do that and you are not part of a larger family, body of believers, you are in sin and you're in violation of Hebrews 10, clearly. If your love for your family drives you to disregard the church, you've not heard Jesus' words, and I would say you're living in disobedience. And some families elevate the role of the father at the expense of God-appointed pastors and elders in the church. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe the prime responsibility to teach children the word of God falls squarely on the parents' shoulders, especially the fathers. Matter of fact, when people ask Harbin, and they ask me, say, and this has only happened a couple of times, but someone will ask, well, do you all have a children's? Do you have stuff for kids? I'll just say, yes, we have stuff for kids. I mean, we do. They sit in the service with us, and then we have Bible study, and they'll say, well, you know, do you have a children's pastor? And I'll say, yeah, we have like 30 We have a lot of children's ministers in our church. I believe that every parent should minister to their child. That the prime responsibility for ministry falls on the the parents. But I do not believe in the model that declares that every dad is a pastor. I believe that's incorrect. I believe that the role of the pastor, and he does some pastoral things, shepherds his home. But the role of elder pastor is given to the church. It's given for many, many purposes, purposes you guys are already aware of that we can't go into this morning. So this doesn't mean that what happens in the family, that doesn't mean that at the expense of our relationships in the church and the authority of church and the fellowship of the church, what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't highlight our family, lift up our family so much that we, we forget the importance of our relationships in the church, the authority of the church, and the fellowship of the church. I have seen and I have heard too many fathers who have propped up their family as an idol only to see it collapse like the Philistine god Dagon did before the Ark of the Covenant with the head cut off and the hands cut off. I have seen fathers lose their authority. The head has been cut off because they put their family up as an idol only to see God tumble it down to show that he does not want us worshiping idols. I've seen it too often. There is a careful and thoughtful balance here that recognizes both the importance of the family but the higher importance of the church. The church and the home are not in conflict. Healthy homes are homes that make much of and exalt the church. And healthy churches are ones that make much of and equip the home. That's how it's supposed to work. Families making much of church 
church making much of families, church equipping families, families exalting the church. That's the balance. And it's hard to find that balance and how your family honors both the natural earthly family and then the supernatural heavenly family is a matter of prayerful, careful, wise judgment that can't be boiled down to a simple checkoff list. So parents, make sure your kids, here's my challenge for parents, make sure your kids grow up with a high view of the church. Make sure your kids grow up with a very high view of the church. How you participate in the church, how you pray for the church, how you talk about the church, even when you think you're alone, your zeal or your lack of zeal for the church, all of that is being passed on. All of that is being passed on. Parents, some of the best ministry you can provide for your home is to invest heavily in the church. When, you, when they see that, that you are giving of your time and your energy and your money to the church, that you are serving the church, guess what? You are serving them in a way, and in a great way, where you are setting them up to be people who live in the family of God in a healthy way in the future. Remember, your earthly family isn't eternal. Your heavenly one is. So let's think about what Jesus is saying here again. This was certainly quite shocking to his listeners. The Jewish person highly valued family. Jews valued very much their tribal ancestry, their lineage. That's why the genealogies are such an important part of the scriptures. But Jesus' kingdom is breaking in, and he's breaking in now with a new type of family, a new lineage, a new tribe, And now all who are found in the Son are themselves sons of God. But those outside the Son, despite their physical lineage, are no longer in the family. The Pharisees, like many other Jews, were putting their hope in their lineage of the flesh instead of their lineage of faith that they should have had. They were putting the hope in lineage of flesh instead of seeing that they were to put hope in lineage of faith. Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist speaking says, Bear fruits in keeping with, with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John eight thirty nine, Jesus speaking. These are the Pharisees speaking to Jesus. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're not doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And then in Romans 9, 6, the Apostle Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. There is a new type of family on the scene, a family not of flesh but of faith, And so the next thing I want us to see is that Jesus is teaching us. He is teaching us that our heavenly kinship is built on gospel unity. Verse 50. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And you say, well, wait a second, Steve. That doesn't sound like gospel. That sounds like works to me. Verse 50 does. Whoever does the will of my Father is my brother and sister and mother. To which I say, yes, whoever does the will of the Father is in Jesus' family. And what is the ultimate doing of the Father's will that Jesus desires for us? Here it is, John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All of our doing, all of our, all of our um, acting for God, what we do for God, rests on faith. Faith is the rock-solid, unshakable foundation of all of our doing. Therefore, this is gospel when Jesus speaks in Matthew 12, 50, and not works. This is gospel. Doing the will of the Father is to believe, and once one believes, he is born again, and therefore he or she will strive in every way to live for God, to obey his word, which means doing God's will in all sorts of ways. D.A. Carson put it this way. We do not make ourselves Jesus' close relatives by doing the will of his heavenly father. Rather, doing the father's will identifies us as his mother and sisters and brothers. It is the good news, it is the gospel that has made us part of the family, not the law. Galatians 3.25 Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Y'all remember the song when you were kids? Father Abraham, right? We could all start singing it if we wanted to. You had to do the different motions. It was kind of a silly song with all the little motions or whatever it was. Okay. I know you all are enjoying watching me do it up here. But the song, though, spoke a very profound truth. A very profound truth. That we are all children of Abraham by faith. The gospel has blown open the doors of who can be in the family of God. You see, God supernaturally rebirths people into his family, people from every nation and tribe and language and people. That's what he came to do. That's what Jesus came to do. Win children of all nations for the Father. That's what he came for. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So now we are heirs with Christ, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are heirs. We are part of the household of God, Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what the gospel has done for us. So now, now that we know that the family of God are those redeemed by the gospel of God, how now should we live in light of this radical redefinition of family? First of all, we should know that the greater family, that being part of a greater family should change the way we view one another. There's a beautiful passage in, in Philemon. I know Philemon is not one of those books we quote a lot. But if you know the book of Philemon, that the, um, Paul is writing this letter uh, and, and a, the bondservant uh, Onesimus is going back to, um, to his, no, Philemon. I'm trying to remember if it's Philemon or Onesimus, but one of them is going back to his owner. And Paul writes this to the owner of the slave. He says this, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So this, this slave had left his master, had escaped, and at some point was saved by the gospel that Paul preached. And Paul sends him back to his owner so he could have him forever, but not have him as a slave, but have him forever as a brother. So, so this earthly, so this greater family, the family of God, changes the way we, we treat one another. Knowing that we're part of the greater family of God changes the way we interact with one another. I challenge you either to get, a, get your... Um, concordance or do an online concordance so you can bring up all the instances and go search for the words one another in, in the New Testament and just see, particularly the epistles, how many things that Paul tells us to do for one another. All these many things we're supposed to be doing for one another because we are part of one family. Knowing the greater family that we are part of changes who we live for. Acts 4.32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. When you realize what you're part of, the greater family you're a part of, guess what? It changes who you're living for. So friends, let us see that church membership is vitally important. Consumer church needs to die. Consumer church needs to die. Your relationships here cannot be like your relationship with the, the, the clerk at Kroger or your hairdresser where you go to get a product and you exchange in a little bit of chit-chat and then you go your own way. That's consumerism. That's relationships that, that rest on consumerism. That can't be us. You can't come here and, and consume a religious product and say your little hellos, put the smile on your face, and go about your life. We should be doing life together. The family, the part, the reason that we're part of a greater family, that, that should change everything, not just our Sundays. 
consumerism needs to die. And there's many people that come to a church like ours and say, yeah, you know what? I don't believe in the program-driven church. I don't believe in consumer church. But the moment you do something they don't like, they're gone. Because they're consumers. You see, when you covenant to be part of a church, you're covenanting to what you're going to give to the church. Our covenant, go look it up. Go pull it offline if you still have your copy. I covenant to do this. I covenant to do this. I covenant to do this. And when people leave the church, what they usually say is, well, no one did this for me. Baloney. That's not what you covenanted to do. You didn't covenant to get. You covenanted to give. You covenanted to give yourself away, give your stuff away, give everything that you are away to minister to your greater family. That's the covenant you entered into. That's the covenant you enter into in a marriage. Why do marriages fall apart? Because we're consumers. She's not giving me this. He's not doing this. You didn't enter into, you entered into a covenant to give to her and serve her till death do you part, even if she never keeps her end of the covenant. So you covenanted to this family, even if no one else in this family ever does anything for you. If everyone else in the church breaks the covenant, but you don't, then you're being obedient. And you still don't have a reason to leave. Because covenant isn't about what you get. Let consumerism die. The greater family should kill it. Consumerism should die. We should move from consumers to community. From what we get to what we give. And we should be a diverse group. One of the most satanic principles that was introduced into the church, in my mind, was the principle that was introduced at the beginning of the church growth movement called the homogeneous unit principle where they would tell young pastors planting churches or pastors trying to pastor a church, you know what, you just need to go after your demographic. That's what you need to do. That's what we were told we planted this church. That's why they put us out here. There's a bunch of white families that we expect to move out there, young white families, so we want you out there in Harbin's. It was built on a satanic principle. Nowhere in the scriptures are we told to build church that way. The gospel attracts whoever the gospel attracts. And the gospel breaks down all the barriers. The dividing wall has fallen down. Every color, every race, every tribe, every language, every people should be welcome at Harbin's. And I believe they are. But I would like to see God continue to develop our diversity. The gospel should drive us to genuine diversity, not token diversity. So Harbin's Harbin's church member here this morning, how can you minister to your earthly family Let me tell you how you can minister to your earthly family. By ministering well to your heavenly family. You want to bless your earthly family? Then bless your heavenly family. You will enrich your kids in greater ways than you could ever imagine. Are you letting an inflated view of your earthly family squeeze out God's family? What changes need to be made in your life, in your schedule? Have you partaken of the opportunities to grow in deep relationships What is the language of the community of God's people? The language is prayer. The language is prayer. I tell you guys, and it's coming up in two weeks, and I will say it until I'm blue in the face. There is nothing as sweet as sitting with brothers and praying and opening up your heart about deep things going on in your life and praying for one another and singing. We grab these hymn books in here sometimes. We just sing together. We become transparent and we become vulnerable before one another 
and we sing, we do unmanly things. And guess what? I leave there knowing these are my brothers. These are my brothers. Are you using your family, your house, your home as a means for ministering to your ultimate family? That's why we are challenged to be hospitable. Is this gathering that we do here on Sunday's mornings, is it more of an intellectual exercise or a religious ritual? Do you come here looking forward to being emotionally vulnerable? To singing to one another songs? Any good family, any good, when you go to a family reunion, what do you remember at the family reunion? Do you just remember the intellectual things of the conversations you had? No, you remember the fun you had together. You remember the joy you had together. You remember the the emotional experiences. And so don't, don't throw emotion out the door. It should exist in a church. So let us come here and fellowship together, being emotionally vulnerable with one another through song and prayer and through organized fellowship. Finally, do you see, do you see that the gathering of the people of God, the establishing of his family, was at the very heart of what God was doing from the very beginning, Genesis 1-1. From the very beginning. And so God has a portrait of his family. And those who have placed their faith in Christ are in that portrait. And right now, right now, we still look pretty dysfunctional. But God is in the process of fixing us. Those portraits I showed you, those those are set. Those aren't changing. The kid with the bat's going to be the kid with the bat. But guess what? In the church right now, even Harbin's, our local expression of the body of Christ, we are fairly dysfunctional, all right? Let's just be honest. We are. We got our problems. But the glorious thing is together in Christ, we are growing and we are being sanctified. It can only happen together. It's not going to happen in a little bubble by yourself reading the Bible in the corner. You've got to be with the people. And we are being sanctified, and that portrait is being perfected. And one day, our portrait will be blended with all the portraits of all the local churches, of all of history, and every tribe, and every tongue, and every language, every nation. All people will be in this beautiful, beautiful portrait of the people of God, celebrating with Jesus, eating a meal together, which is a glorious way to fellowship with one another, eating a meal together, singing songs together around the throne of grace. What a day that will be. But unbeliever, I ask you, will you come this morning? Will you put your faith in Christ? Will you be a part of that family? You must be born again. You cannot naturally be born into the family of God. You have to be supernaturally born. You must turn from your sin. You must submit to Christ as your Lord by putting all your faith in him alone. And when you put your faith in Christ, you will be united to him. You will become a child of God, no longer part of a hopeless dysfunctional human family, but part of a new family that is being renewed and will one day be perfected in the presence of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came down and took on flesh to be, be like your brothers in every respect. And you didn't just come as a 30-year-old man who just popped on the scene came as a child so that you could also experience family with us. Of course, the most perfect family is the relationship, Jesus, you have with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But you entered into humanity, into the human family, to win sons, to draw us in, to fold us into your relationship with the Father. 
So Jesus, we praise you for what you're doing and what you've done. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this family, as dysfunctional as we are. I thank you for what you're doing in our individual families. I thank you for the growth that I have seen in my own home, and I've also seen in the homes of people here in this room. I praise you for that. That is a glorious thing that you are doing. And so, Father, we thank you for our families, and we thank you for our greater family. Help us to find that difficult balance, to minister to our our earthly families, but at the same time not neglect the heavenly one. That is a hard balance to find. So, God, give us grace to do that. Give us wisdom. Give us patience, because sometimes, I'll be honest, you just want to give up. You just want to give up. Give us perseverance to love one another. Forgive us of our shortcomings. Forgive us for not visiting those who need to be visited, who are ill and not here at the church. The amount of people in this church, we should be caring for one another better. Forgive us. But God, make us, make us into the people you want us to be. And God, help us to see that that what Jesus is doing is he is doing a work in his people. So as we are made into the people you want us to be, that only happens by faith. So give us greater faith in Jesus. Give us greater reliance on the Savior. Help us to step away from, from formulas and systems that we've set up to protect our family or whatever that we think is what needs to be done. Help us to step away from those things if it be for the, for the betterment of your larger family. So Jesus, we ask for you to be honored today as we sing this last song. Father, I pray that if there be any unbelievers in here, and Holy Spirit, I ask you to move amongst those who are not believers. Draw them to yourself as we sing this next song. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.